All right, good evening, everyone. And thank you for coming back to lesson number four. Um, I am so happy that you've made it this far. We're in the last lesson of our first seminar book, God's Hand in the Building of America. And so we are going to get started here tonight. Um, if you could, as you're joining us, let me just minimize this again here. Um, if you could, as you're joining us, go ahead and drop your name and where you're coming in from uh, into the Q&A or the chat, whatever is available tonight. And a big thank you to Hannah and Tressie, as always, for running the PowerPoint for me and um, for all that they do to make these Zoom calls possible. Um, it's always fun to find other like-minded people near you. So that's why I asked you to put your name and info in the chat. Maybe we can make some connections. And then I also wanted to do another shout out as Hannah already did for our, um, for our group. So I'm the Virginia State Liaison here at Moms for America. And uh, we love to get groups started in every state. And we are in need of more state liaisons and more groups always. So if you or anyone that you know would be interested in starting a group where you can learn, you can empower each other, you can talk about how to raise that next generation of patriots up and promote liberty at home, then these groups are for you. And we would love to have you come and join us. Um, so please do reach out to us if you have any interest in either leading a group or being a part of a group. Uh, or even being a state leader wherever you are. Um, I highly recommend it. My life has been so incredibly blessed by Moms for America and my involvement ever, ever since I started volunteering. I have had nothing but blessing upon blessing from this, this organization. So I highly, highly recommend that you get involved. And again, we thank you so much for joining us on these classes. Um, so tonight we're going to be talking about the perils of freedom. And so last week, as you know, we had um, wrapped up with the end of the Revolutionary War. And so tonight we're going to be talking about the Constitutional Convention. But before we jump in, I wanted to actually let you all know about something really wonderful that happened on January 31st in, D in Washington, D.C., here where I live. Um, we had a national gathering for prayer and repentance. And I was only able to catch a replay that's posted online. It was like about a five hour long event. And it was so wonderful just tuning in to hear some of the prayers that were being said, some of the repentant hearts of our leaders that were coming forth and, and sharing out loud and speaking to God and, you know, praying for our nation, lifting it up. Um, speaking liberty and proclaiming liberty in the name of Jesus. And it was just wonderful. So if you have time to go back and watch that, we'll try to get that link for you. Um, and I also wanted to uh, share with you the American letter to the church or letter to the American church by Eric Metaxas. Um, he actually wrote the book first and now there is a documentary. And I believe that that's being shared um, by the Epic Times. So if you go there you can get a membership and watch the Letter to the American Church for $4.99. And if you don't have the membership, you can watch it for $9.99. I haven't watched it yet myself, but it's on my to-do list. And I've heard so far that it's just fantastic. And if you're like me and are crunched for time to read a whole book, maybe put, popping on the documentary might be a good option for you. Um, but what, what I really found through both of these things was you know, kind of a, a word from the Lord that was saying, you know, in, in my word in Deuteronomy, it says to proclaim liberty 
um, into all the land and to all the inhabitants thereof. And that's actually on our, on our Liberty Bell in Pennsylvania. And I had always thought that that just meant to tell people about liberty and inform them um, about what our, you know, how our republic is formed and all those things. But really, I was getting this word that, you know what, proclaim means that we're proactively claiming it. We're telling people that we have liberty. And so it was really this kind of mind shift for me and I got really emboldened. And so now I'm like, yes, like we need to say in the name of Jesus, we are going to have liberty. We are going to be restored. We are going to renew and revive America. We will prevail over the enemies of freedom. And we will we will do this. We can and we will. And it's totally possible. All things are possible with God. And he put us here as a country to be a light to the world. And there is no reason why he cannot use our efforts, our small and simple means to to reclaim this nation and to get us back on track. And so I was just so encouraged by that word. And I wanted to share it with you all because it's really been um, just on my heart lately. And I just personally want to do a better job of, uh, of saying that America will prevail and, and that we will beat down Marxism again. And I just want to be able to proclaim that. And I think that we should all be doing that as we move forward um, God just didn't give us this free first free society just to see it crumble. Um, so anyway, on that note, have you all gotten your books yet? Have you been reading and following along and filling in the blanks? I hope so. You can also write in cursive and that helps you to remember what you've written down. That's a great way to, to trigger your mind to remember things. So I just want to encourage you to do that. And then um, lastly, just going back to our our... Our, our plan here for the night. We're gonna be doing the Constitutional Convention. So if you remember, um, well, by now, I hope that you're encouraged and remembering our great history and the principles of freedom that made us great, those ancient principles that Thomas Jefferson discovered that are eternal, um, that, that, we, <laughs> that we see in our constitution, we see his, his, God's hand in our founding. I hope by now you're seeing that through the studies that we've been doing. And so tonight we're gonna see more of that through this constitutional convention and how things happened in just such a way that brought this all together at just the right time and just the right way and how it was inspired by God. So it was really almost a miracle that it even ever took place. None of the states after the war really wanted to see it happen. And from all appearances, it really seemed like everybody just kind of wanted to go their own way after the Revolutionary War. And so as you recall from last week, when we ended the Revolutionary War, um, in March of 1783, George Washington finds out that his army is planning to basically mutiny and seize the government and try to make him a king. So he goes to see them at the Newburgh headquarters in New York, and he gives the Newburgh address on March 15th, 1783. And you may remember this one. This is the one where he takes off his spectacles and he says, gentlemen, you will permit me to put on my spectacles for I have grown not only gray, but almost blind in the service of my country. And many soldiers were moved to tears when he said that. And he said it um, sort of after he had already started speaking. And I think he included that line intentionally 
to remind them of all the sacrifices that they had all given, not just him, but the physical sacrifices, as well as all the other sacrifices that they had given during that time to remind them of their duty, the importance of a civilian army, the principles of a, of a republic that they had all been fighting for this entire time. And they were gonna get ready to just throw it all away because they were upset because Congress owed them back pay um, for their time serving in the, in the military. So he, he talked sense to them. He calms them down. He says, uh, you know, you're going to get paid. Everything's going to be okay. Like we need to, to remember, uh, you know, our duties here. And so he saw his duties all the way through to the end. He was essentially like the last person to leave. He waited for all the British uh, troops to disperse and everybody to get settled and go home their different ways. And then he finally went to that farewell dinner we talked about last week at um, Francis Tavern in New York on December 4th, then to Annapolis to officially resign his commission. And then finally, he went home just in time for Christmas with Martha. I think he arrived home on um, Christmas Eve. And when he arrives home, he is tired, he's suffering from arthritis and um, just being exposed out in the elements for of war for eight years. And um, he sees that Mar Mount Vernon is in poor shape, it's in disrepair. So he tries to sell off some of his land to help pay debts. And he had many debts um, and he had to put off a sheriff three times who was coming to collect tax back taxes at Mount Vernon. And then he also got a letter from his church saying that um, the the payment for his pew was overdue um, to add to all the other debts that he had. He said that he had never felt this poor since he was 15 years old. And if you recall, their father died, um, you know, fairly when he was fairly young um, as a boy. And then they had to move to a, a one of the other farms that their family had that was not um, as prestigious as where they had been. And they were not very well off. And so he said, even still, I am going to find happiness without wealth or health. It is better to go laughing than crying through the rough journey of life. And so clearly he had his priorities straight. He understood that we go through hard times and God tests us and, and we go through suffering, but it makes us stronger. And he had such a wonderful attitude. What a great reminder to all of us for, you know, to have that kind of sense of character and to to be just thankful i think he was clearly thankful just to be home with his martha and his beloved mount vernon but little did he or martha know that their time at mount vernon together would be short-lived uh, because as we know he's going to be uh becoming president again soon so or not again but he'll be becoming president soon uh so Back to the convention. So in March 28th of 1785, Washington invites delegates from his own state of Virginia to meet with delegates from Maryland. Maryland is the, the state right above us in uh, uh, north of us and work out a settlement of their quarrel over trade and fishing rights. And this was really successful. And so Congress was urged to hold a trade conference for all the states. And this trade conference was ended up being held the following fall in September of 1786. And a good spirit was prevailing among the delegates, but only five states were represented. So there wasn't really a big enough group to do business of the country. But the delegates decided to ask Congress to call a general convention so that all the states could come together to work out their problems 
both economical and political. And so Congress finally schedules this convention on uh, to meet on May 14th, 1787. So the, if I could have, um, I'm sorry, I forgot to cue you on the slide. Um, there's the slide for George Washington. And yeah, there we are. Um, so this is Independence Hall in Pennsylvania and there's George Washington on the statue there in front of the building. He was the president of the, of the Congress there or of the convention, I'm sorry. And so the, the Constitutional Convention became the most important convocation of political leaders. And it was so fortunate that each of the states sent some of its most outstanding leaders. Altogether, there were 73 delegates appointed to attend the convention, but many of them wouldn't uh, had no money to attend. And actually, some of them had to even borrow money to attend. So James Madison had to borrow money to attend. And as a result of having no money to attend, only 55 of the 73 actually went and participated in the Constitutional Convention. Um, and because of personal circumstances, even George Washington was almost unable to attend. Can we imagine what that would have gone like if we didn't attend? Um, but he, his brother had recently died. His mother and his sister were really ill. And Washington was just in such pain that he couldn't even sleep at night. But his friends persuaded him to attend. And otherwise, I'm sure the convention would have failed if he hadn't hadn't have been there without his leadership to pull everyone together. Um, if we could see that next slide too. So Benjamin Franklin, who was 81 years old and he had difficulty attending, even though he was in Philadelphia as his home and where he lived, he actually had to have prisoners from the prison carry him in a sedan chair every day to the convention. But um, two of these men weren't even at the convention, but they were really some of the most uh, they had the greatest contributions, and that was John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. So John Adams, at the bottom left there, was serving as the American minister to England. Um, he had written a treatise called, entitled A Defense of the Constitution of the Government of the United States, and this document was really widely uh, circulated throughout the convention. His friend and fellow Virginian, Thomas Jefferson, bottom right, was also absent and he was serving as the American minister to France, but he had sent more than a hundred carefully selected books from his own personal library to James Madison. And Madison made himself basically a walking encyclopedia on the history uh, and political philosophy of the governments of the past. And Jefferson corresponded with him on what he considered to be the most essential elements of a good constitution. And therefore, a month before the convention, Madison wrote a summary of the weaknesses of the Articles of Confederation, and it was entitled, The Vices of the Political System of the United States. And then he outlined what he thought would be a constitution that could remedy the situation. So no one was better prepared than James Madison for this convention. Um, and so these are basically the four key crucial players of the convention right here, George Washington, Ben Franklin, John Adams, and Thomas Jefferson, as well as, of course, the father of our constitution, James Madison. So if I can see that next slide. 
So James Madison was eight years younger than Thomas Jefferson. He was short and so, sort of small, and he was the youngest delegate at the convention. He attended Princeton, where he came under the um, discipline of John Witherspoon, who was the president of Princeton. And he was later a signer, uh, Witherspoon was later, later a signer of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, James Madison was 29 at the time of the convention. And uh, I think if we could see that next slide too. Um, he was from Virginia as well, Montpelier. This is his home. It's about an hour away from Monticello, Thomas Jefferson's home in Southern Virginia. And he married Dolly Madison at age 39. And we can see that next slide too. If you recall, she saved that famous portrait of George Washington uh, while, uh, while uh, James Madison was the fourth president. They never had any children, although she, she was a widow. So she had one child from a previous marriage. But it's interesting that Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, and James Madison, none of them had male heirs. So it was very interesting. But Dolly was alive 13 years after James Madison's death. And she basically has to sell off Montpelier and she lives in poverty for the remainder of her life, basically living with other people until she dies. And it's so interesting because that's something that I was really shocked when I read this book, it's called uh, Wives of the Signers. And so many of them had very similar stories where they just continued to have trial after trial and suffering and, and discomfort and unpleasantness and poverty and sickness and illness and death and all these things happening to them after they had already come through this revolutionary war. And you feel like, you know, oh, they were the heroes. They, they made it, they did it. Like they must've lived these grand lives after they achieved liberty for America and like been these superstar people, but their times were not like our times. So after they were done being presidents and presidents' wives, they went back to being normal people who had to still provide for themselves and, and care for themselves and, and still deal with all the issues that we have to deal with. And so it's really interesting book. If you uh, pick it up, I think it's from Wall Builders, but you'll just be so surprised at how, how their lives ended up so differently than maybe I had imagined throughout my life that they would have ended up. Um, it's just very, very interesting. Um, so Madison worked closely with Jefferson in Virginia. He helped him develop his massive, massive legislative reform and push some of it through after Jefferson had left for France. Madison served in the Congress from uh, 1780 to 1783, and he was really considered the most able political leader in the National Assembly. So he was well prepared and he was most able. So he was perfect person for this job. It was clearly divine providence of God that Madison was present to provide the principal leadership at the Constitutional Convention. He represented the advanced views of both himself and his friend Jefferson. So moving on now to the opening of the convention. So now it's time to actually meet and get this thing started. So the opening of the convention actually had to be postponed because the delegates from only two states had arrived by May 14th, 1787, which was the day that they had planned for this to take place. But this turned out to be a really great thing. And it's so funny because sometimes in life, you know, you think something bad is happening to you, but then it turns out for good. And this is one of those situations. And it just goes to show that that's how God works in all these mysterious ways, right? So, you know, sometimes we think we even have a good thing and it turns out to be a bad thing. So it, it's it's just also relative, but, um, 
what happened was the Virginia delegation saw that there would be a delay. And so the members, John Blair, James Madison, George Mason, James McClurg, Edmund Randolph, George With, and George Washington, all from Virginia, decide to start holding these early morning planning sessions where they just, you know, outlined uh, the results of Madison's research and he recommended a structure of government completely different from what they had, which was that Articles of Confederation, remember, was very weak. Um, so if I could have the next slide, please. So by the time that a majority of the state delegations arrive in Philadelphia, the Virginia delegation has already formulated the 15 resolutions describing some of the things that they thought this new system should have. And this became known as the Virginia's 15 resolves, which constituted the basic agenda for the rest of the constitution. Other resolves, uh, other resolutions were added as the convention got underway. And so 11 days later, by May 25th, 1787, the delegations from seven states had arrived and others came along in due time until everybody was there except for Rhode Island, which they had basically, they were called Rogue Island because they just didn't want to, to participate in any of this. Um, but the first order of business was to elect a president of the convention. And you can go to the next slide if you'd like. Um, and of course, George Washington is elected unanimously. He is the man, right? He has proved himself as this great leader. He's like this, you know, founding father and a general and everyone respected and admired him. And he brought strength and stability and credibility to this convention so that people respected it and took it seriously. And nobody else could lead it except for George Washington. And so they had a secretary from South Carolina, but he was not really good at being a secretary. So James Madison was the real secretary and the historian of the whole convention. So he sat in the front and he took lots of notes, copious notes on everything that was said and done. And after each uh, session, after the day was done, he would work far into the night, um, filling in the details and making sure that he had all of his notes, you know, really well done. And he occasionally actually made himself sick because he was working so hard and he was fatigued and he was trying to, you know, just make sure everything was done. And so he was staying up late and um, would, would get himself ill over all of this work. His notes were kept secret for 30 years, but they were finally published uh, by an act of Congress in 1843. You can still find them for sale. Uh, the, the book is called Notes of Debates in the Federal Convention of 1787. And this book is still in the Library of Congress as well. But here you see George Washington uh, up at the front and the convention followed this procedure that really helped to facilitate debate and kind of like a blue sky session where they could talk about ideas and have discussion and not be judged or forced to make decisions or have things count as official. So what they would do is they would go to a committee of the whole, which would consist of all the delegates, and this would permit them to reach temporary decisions and uh, didn't count as official positions of the convention. And so that's why Washington would step down from his chair throughout the convention and then someone else, uh, Nathaniel Gore Gorham of Massachusetts would take his place as chairman 
of the Committee of the Whole. And so once they reached an agreement in that um, you know, subcommittee thing, then they would turn themselves back into a convention and then vote formally on the question. Before the convention was over, the members had reached general agreement on everything except for three issues. One was how soon the national government should begin to regulate or abolish slavery. The other one was whether votes in Congress should be according to individual states or the population of states. And the last one was whether or not the or whether the federal government should have authority to regulate interstate commerce. So what you really need to know about the, the slavery issue is that the southern states mortgages on their lands were tied to their slaves. So if they had abolished slavery immediately, it would have destroyed the economy of the South. And eventually that would have also negatively impacted the other states. So everyone knew that it must be abolished because here they are talking about liberty and freedom and to abolish tyranny. And how could they possibly expect, you know, freedom from a tyrannical king of uh, King George? And then they knew that these other citizens were still in slavery and bondage. So everyone was in agreement that it needed to go. But the question was how and when. And so in the Constitution, in Article 1, Section 4, which we'll study in the next seminar series, uh, they were going to give it 20 years to phase out. And additionally, the North was going to have the ability to regulate the commerce of the South because sometimes the South would charge Northern states that it didn't like more for its cotton and its goods, um, which was not fair, obviously. And so the trade-off was that they were going to be able to regulate that commerce additionally. So we'll talk more about that phase out process and what happened at that 20 year mark in a in the future lesson. But since there's only really a, a few compromises in the constitution, it's really a mistake for textbooks and people to say, oh, the constitution was just a, a, bit, a bunch of compromises. They just all had to like, just, you know, give everything up and nobody really reached any kind of consensus. No, they talked it out and they had general agreement and consistent consensus on nearly everything. And next slide, please. One of the reasons that they were able to do this is because they were all studying and reading the same philosophers, the same legal scholars, the same uh, political and philosophical minds of their time and, and of the past as well. So Cicero, and Blackstone and Locke and Montesquieu and all these people. And you can read more about all of this in the 5,000 year leap, which is a great book. Um, but uh, they were all reading the Bible. They were all listening to similar sermons. So it was, it was really easier for them to come to an agreement because they had the same uh, sort of background and the same sort of uh, viewpoint that they were coming from. Uh, let's see, okay. Tuesday, May 29th, after the delegations from nine states had arrived and all the preliminaries had been arranged, uh, Edmund Randolph, Governor Ed Edmund Randolph of Virginia, he arises and introduces these 15 resolutions or the results, which we had talked about, um, which had been prepared in advance. The, these become the agenda. And no country in the world had ever been structured the way that these Virginia resolves were suggesting and so every point had to be carefully analyzed and debated and <clears throat> it should be kept in mind that congress had told all the delegates that they were meeting for the purpose of amending the articles of confederation but really there was a general feeling that they really needed to 
restructure the whole thing and that the a, a different kind of constitutional structure was needed. The delegates knew that whatever was proposed um, had to be approved by Congress and the states. So they felt really justified in, in you know, proposing a new one because they knew that it was going to have to be approved anyway. So rather than just putting patches on that defective Articles of Confederation, they really felt, you know, we're justified in, in coming up with a brand new thing here. So if I could see that next slide. So the whole convention takes four months to reach final agreement on the many prickly issues raised by the resolves and to write them into a formal constitution. This is from May until September. So the hottest months of the year on the eastern on the east coast and if you are from the east coast or visit here in the summer you know that we have very hot and humid summers just drenching wet sweat kind of days and as you can see the men here had to wear their coats and their jackets and their vests and their stockings and all their you know their their attire from the times and they also wanted to close the windows and the shutters in their in their room there in Independence Hall because passers-by would try to listen and hear what they were discussing and they didn't want people to know what what was being discussed because they didn't want to be called you know oh he's he changed his mind oh he he's a hypocrite oh blah 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 so what they did was they just said no we're gonna you know keep it very private and so if you can go to the next slide you'll see that you know, at that time, there wasn't traffic and city noise to kind of, you know, keep it quiet. There was just people milling about on the street and there they are. So um, it would be easy for people to just kind of put their ear and see what was what was going on. But uh, <laughs> I feel bad for them, but I can't imagine the the heat and the probably the smells and things that were happening in there, but they persevered through all four months. And so from May 30th to June 13th, they discussed these Virginia results one at a time. They determined the points of general agreement and they postponed until a later date, the questions that are involving more debate. And then William Patterson of New Jersey says on June 14th, can we have like tomorrow to present something different? And so they let him present on Friday, June 15th, the New Jersey plan. And that plan, I mean, he had said that the smaller states wanted to scrap the Virginia resolve and go back to patching up the Articles of Confederation. So they kind of already knew that it wasn't going to be the same as the Virginia plan. But here uh, on the next slide, you'll see the two different plans comparison side by side. So the Virginia plan, they wanted a legislature with a uh, two branches, and then the New Jersey plan wanted a single body. The Virginia plan wanted a source of legislative power that was in the people, and the New Jersey plan wanted it in the states. And really, we had that until about 1913. Um, the Senate was supposed to be uh, uh, accountable to the states and representing the states. Um, in 1913, there was an amendment passed in the Constitution that changed that so that they were also uh, to the people. Uh, representing the people. So now we have both the Senate and the House are uh, answering to the people. And so that has thrown off the, the balance of power and the checks and balances that our founders originally put forth. Um, but we'll talk about more that more as we go through this next seminar as well. And then the executive, the president, Virginia said we want one president and New Jersey said we want more than one. Uh, which obviously we ended up with one president and one vice president. And then legislative action 
the Virginia plan said by ma by majority, and the New Jersey plan said by a small minority. And then for the extent of the legislative power, the Virginia plan said all national concerns and the New Jersey plan said limited objects. So we really have that, that's kind of both as well because we have a Congress that can address national concerns but they have only 20 uh, enumerated powers that they can use. And then for the removing of the president, the Virginia plan wanted to do it by impeachment and then the New Jersey plan wanted to do it upon application of the majority of states. And so those were kind of the main differences of the plans. And we did end up with a little bit of the New Jersey plan. So if I could see the next slide, while this convention was contemplating these two different plans, Alexander Hamilton just kind of stands up and he presents this entirely different plan all on his own. And he says, it's too dangerous to go into these untried waters. We better go back to the British pattern. So uh, Alexander Hamilton, which you probably know from Hamilton, the musical, um, he was an illegitimate child. He immigrated to America in his teens and he served as George Washington's aide during the revolution. And he was also a general in the army during the revolution. And then later he would serve as secretary of the treasury to uh, for George Washington as when he was president. Um, but he wrote 50 of the 85 Federalist Papers with John Jay and John Adams. Unfortunately, in 1804, Aaron Burr, who was the vice president at the time, killed him in a duel. And dueling was illegal at that time, but Aaron Burr gets away with it, uh, which is really interesting. And in those days, uh, the loser of a presidential election would become the vice president. And so Thomas Jefferson won. And so since Aaron Burr lost the election, he became the vice president. And Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton had this ongoing back and forth kind of, you know, hateful relationship where they were trying to kind of stop each other from doing things. And uh, it, Obviously, the, the vice president and the president wouldn't have had a good relationship either. So uh, it was kind of a, a sticky situation. But um, later, Aaron Burr actually gets, uh, he becomes basically a traitor. And he's trying to plan to uh, turn Louisiana territory into like its own little country. And he wants to be the leader of it. So he ends up like being this conspirator and his career is kind of like, you know, over politically. Um, and he, he just lives out his days, I think, in New York. He had, he had gone overseas for a while, but he came back to New York to, to pass away. But then uh, Alexander Hamilton's house, um, if you could go to the ne next slide, you can still visit it. It's actually called the Grange House. It's in New York City in what's now considered uh, modern day Harlem. And it's, I think, 141st Street. It was built in 1802, so just two years before he died. He and his wife, Eliza, had eight children and, you know, wonderful life. But um, back to the convention, <laughs> Hamilton's plan, when he stands up and says, we need to go back to the British plan, uh, it says in the notes that uh, it was applauded by all and supported by none. It was not even discussed, let alone voted upon. Um, and then on June 19th, a very moving speech was given by James Madison, and he says, that the, con the convention must come up with a constitution for the ages and that only the Virginia plan would stand the test of time. And so immediately after that, 
They scrapped the New Jersey plan and then Hamilton's plan also was abandoned and Hamilton even abandoned, abandoned, abandoned it himself and he returns to New York. Um, he did come back to the con convention before it adjourns, um, but he kind of went off to have like a little pity party or something, I think. Um, so after June 19th, the convention tried to probe some of the more prickly questions which they had previously put off. And the next five weeks from June 19th through July 26th are known as the crisis period of the convention where they're really hashing out the really tough stuff. And so if I can have the, the next slide, please. It was during this crisis that Benjamin Franklin, 81 years old, suffering with gout, I'm sure exhausted, <laughs> and he requests to speak and he, he stands up probably very slowly and speaking to Washington, he says, I have lived, sir, a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men, and if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings, that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. We shall be divided by our little partial local interests. Our projects will be confounded, and we ourselves shall become a reproach and a byword down to future ages. And what is worse, mankind may after, may hereafter, from this unfortunate instance, despair of establishing government by human wisdom and leave it to chance, war, or conquest. I therefore beg leave to move that hereafter prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessing on our deliberations be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business and that one or more of the clergy of this city be requested to officiate in that service. Now, Benjamin Franklin was called the golden patriot. He is called the father uh, of morality in our in our founding fathers and his motion to minister to serve as the chap uh, uh, to invite a minister I'm sorry as the chaplain to offer daily prayers it didn't pass for the simple reason that those ministers were going to charge for their for their time to pray and the convention didn't have any money to to pay for that so uh, they weren't able to do that but nevertheless his plea of prayer and the importance of praying before they set forth on these efforts really had a sobering effect on the delegates and they set about their task with greater determination and I'm sure that they were all sort of humbled as they were reminded by this elderly founding father who was wise um, you know reminding them we need to be in prayer about this um, so you know we have many forefathers do you know how many forefathers we have? We have a lot, but there's actually four founding fathers. And if I can have the next slide, we can see them. Oh, not that one. <laughs> I think it's the one before. Uh-oh. Oh, I'm sorry. You're right. Let's do that one. That one's about prayer. So this is a little... Um, this is Carpenter's Hall back when they were doing uh, the Declaration of Independence of uh, this portrait. And the link there will be put into the chat or the Q&A for you. But that link has amazing information about 
the founding fathers' personal beliefs and their personal trust and faith in God and wonderful quotes, 33 pages long if you go to that, that website. And I just put it in here as a reminder that they were men of faith. And we often hear that they were deists. They felt like God was, you know, some sort of, you know, clockmaker who just wound us up and let us go. Um, but their quotes, their own words actually really show that they were not deists at all and had great faith for many were men of great faith. And so I just like to include that link in there to help help you to be able to refute that when you hear it in the future, because so many of their words have been uh, removed from history books and textbooks so that people don't know that they were such great men of faith um, as they were, as they were. Um, so let's go ahead and see that next slide to the, to the forefathers. Here are our forefathers. This is George Washington, the father of our country, James Madison, the father of our constitution, as we're learning tonight, and then Benjamin Franklin, the father of morality, and Samuel Adams, the father of the revolution. And so I'm sure you're probably thinking to yourself, or if you're not, I was, the father of morality, I thought that Benjamin Franklin was this womanizer who was, you know, having illegitimate children and, you know, having all these affairs in France and blah, blah, blah. Well, I have got to tell you that all of that is not true. And in the book, The Real Benjamin Franklin, uh, which I think we've recommended on here already before, um, they actually refute it. And they talk about how during that time of letters and diaries and journals, no one ever said that they had you know, been with Benton Franklin. Um, there's no record of that. There was a, a girl who he had walked down the aisle um, as as a father would have, but in that time it was it was commonplace for someone else to do that for, for a young lady. Um, so he was not actually his her father, but he was just fulfilling that role for her. And he had very good friendly relationships with ladies. He liked ladies company. I mean, who doesn't, right? We're great. Um, but he was not uh, a philanderer. And he actually married Deborah Reed. He was married to her for quite some time until her death. And he had a child with her uh, before they were married. So out of wedlock, but he raised that child honorably as his own. And he took all of the blame for what had happened because he wanted to protect his wife's honor. And then they ended up having two more children, one of whom was um, really died at a young age, I think four years old, and then a, a daughter. So they ended up having two, two children that made it to adulthood. And um, Jefferson himself wrote, uh, I have seen with extreme indignation the blasphemies lately vended against the memory of the father of American philosophy, but his memory will be preserved and venerated as long as the thunder of heaven shall be heard or feared. So um, I just wanted to share that with you because it's it's one of those things like you say it enough and people will believe it. And that's kind of what's happened here. There's really no proof or evidence that he was any of those things that people say. And he he did have that book of virtue, that book of virtues that he put together 13 virtues. And every night he would check off to see if he could. Um, you know, do each of those virtues each day. And he shared it with his friends and they said, well, sir, this is like your, this is a source of pride for you. Where's your humility? And so he added humility as the 13th virtue on the list because he was like, I'm going to show them I can still be humble, even if I can check all these off every day, which is kind of funny. But the Reese report, which we'll talk about more in a future class, 
reveals that billions of dollars have been spent to malign the founders and none of them has been more maligned than Benjamin Franklin. And so uh, it's just, it's really interesting. It, it's something we'll talk more about as we get there. But for 25 years, he was a diplomat to England and France. He um, was one of the three negotiators of the peace treaty, the Paris peace treaty with um, Great Britain after the Revolutionary War. And um, he also was able to really tell still a good story. Roger Sherman said that even during the convention, he was telling stories like a young man and that he was still very engaging and interesting and that um, you know he, he was just this great storyteller which is a kind of a fun personal fact to know about him. Um, what he would do is in the morning, he would go and work his, his regular job, which was doing work for the state of Pennsylvania. And then he would attend the convention for at least five hours a day in the afternoon. So he was doing kind of double duty, but aren't we thankful um, that, that he did. So another valley of uh, shadow enveloped the convention between July 10th and July 16th. So, just trying to decide how the president should be elected required over 60 ballots. And so it was during this dark period of their crisis period that George Washington said, oh, I, I just want to repent of having had any agency in this business. <laughs> and observers said that he looked as grim as when he was at Valley Forge, which was such a tough time. So you know, he was hot and tired and hearing all this back and forth and probably very difficult to go through 60 back and forth ballots on this, um, you know, one issue. But a breakthrough finally comes on July 16th and the delegates were at last able to agree on a formula for allocating representation in Congress. And so the small states had been determined to have one vote for each state as provided in the Articles of Confederation. But the larger states had insisted that representation should be according to population. And so you can see how that would be a problem. Uh, that's one of the reasons why we have the Electoral College now. So delegates from Georgia argued that this would give the big state of Virginia 16 times more representatives than Georgia. And Madison argues back that if each state had one vote, then a person from Georgia has 16 times more representation than a citizen of Virginia. Very clever. But both sides finally agreed to accept the suggestion of Roger Sherman of Connecticut that each state should have equal representation in the Senate, but that the seats in the House of Representatives should be apportioned to the states according to population, which is what we now have. So we have two senators per state, and then we have the delegates according to population. And this suggestion was made three separate times during these debates before it was finally suggested, uh, before it was finally accepted, I'm sorry. And the key to this uh, provision was that they had veto power over each other. And so that made everyone able to approve it. And they were, they were okay with the legislation having to be approved by both houses before it being uh, accepted. So finally, on July 26, the principal issues have been sufficiently settled and put into this rough form of a constitution. The committee on detail was therefore appointed and they were instructed to get the report completed by August 6. So from August 6 to September 8, the convention hammers out many more details which needed refining. And that by this time, 11 of the 55 delegates had already gone home. So Hamilton, Yates, and Lansing of 
New York were among those who left. And as we said, Hamilton later returned, but he couldn't even vote anymore because his state didn't have enough delegates to vote anymore. So he just kind of came back to, to witness everything. Um, and then on September 8th, the amended rough draft uh, from the Committee on Detail was then turned over to a special committee on style and they were gonna do this final rewrite. And so most of that rewrite was done in four days. Uh, we can see that next slide by Governor Morris. Governor Morris was a delegate from Pennsylvania and he has a peg leg, which is really cool. It makes him look like a pirate or something. So love that. Um, but he would clean up the language and just make it more professional. He was a skilled lawyer and a writer. And then he also wrote our amazing preamble to the Constitution, you know, we the people. And uh, later we'll talk about how you can teach we the people to your children. My daughter was able to say it at two years old with the hand motions. Love that. It was so fun. Um, we we still do it for fun around here just to to keep in practice and keep remembering it. Um, but he was a great asset to finishing up that constitution. And so now we move on. We have a founders have given us this new government. We can go to the next slide. So what they did was uh, this graph that you'll see really helps to kind of put it in, in perspective here for you graphically. But the power base is structured exactly as it had been visualized from the reading of history of ancient e Israel and the Anglo-Saxons. We talked about before how um, Moses had put uh, people in charge at the suggestion of his, his father-in-law Jethro. He said, you know, you, you can't handle all these issues on your own. You need to put people in charge of the thousands and people in charge of the hundreds and people in charge of the fifties and then the individuals so that they can handle problems on their own levels and instead of going to Moses for everything. So that's where this structure comes from. And you can see it there where the power base is really the power in the people and they're solving issues locally and sort of amongst themselves. That's where the base of that power is. And it was fixed firmly in the balanced center of the political spectrum. So remember ruler's law is tyranny, it's uh, monarchy, it's all the isms, communism, Marxism, socialism, etc. And then the no law on the other side is where you get your complete anarchy. And so if you recall, we had that other graph where the Articles of Confederation were kind of in between that people's law and no law, so they were weak. Um, but this moved them over into that centra central area of people's law. And then you can see at the top with the federal government, you have limited government. So they have the least amount of power in that structure. And the separation of powers was, so it was both vertical and horizontal. As you can see, the vertical separation of powers clearly divides the responsibilities and political authority between the states and the government, the federal government. And the purpose of the constitution was to coordinate, not consolidate these two systems of government, the state and the, and the federal. And so this gives particular significance to the words of James Madison when he emphasized the inescapable inescapable necessity of the people maintaining control over their affairs. And he wrote, the powers delegated by the proposed constitution to the federal government are few and defined right there at the top. Those which are to remain in the state governments are numerous and indefinite. The former will be exercised principally on external objects as war, peace negotiation, and foreign commerce, 
with which the last power of taxation will, for the most part, be connected. The powers reserved to several states will extend to all the objects which, in the ordinary course of affairs, concern the lives, liberties, and prosperity of the state. And that's from the Federalist Papers, number 45, if you wanted to look it up uh, for yourself and check, check out more about what he had to say about that. But the founders provided a horizontal separation of powers among the three major branches of government, legislative, executive, judiciary, and this was later copied by all the states. So it was like creating a three-headed eagle with a common neck so that each department would be uh, independent but could not function without the support of the other two. So in other words, this was a separation of power with checks and balances or checks to keep everything in balance, the checks and balances that we always talk about. And this illustration really demonstrates that, right? So at the top, you've got the three heads and then you've got the House and the Senate, the House being uh, one side of the two of the two sides that are sticking out. And then you've got the three branches, so executive, legislative, and judicial. And um, uh, let's see here. So the Senate says, can we afford it? And how does this infringe on the rights of people? Um, they are the wing of... Uh, uh, resources and uh, how to conserve resources and the people's and uh, having people's freedom still in mind. Its function is to analyze the programs of the first wing with those two questions. Can we afford it? And what will it do to the rights of individuals? And then the other wing, wing one, is uh, basically the problem solving wing. It's the wing of compassion. So those who function through this dimension of the system are sensitive to unfulfilled needs of people and they dream of plans to solve problems. So it's this balance of wanting to solve problems and then how will that affect things? So it's it's a nice balance. And that's what we always we always wanted in the government from back from the founders times. So if either of these wings is failing its job, then the American Eagle is gonna drift to anarchy or tyranny. And so if uh, for say, uh, wing number one becomes infatuated with the idea of solving all the problems of the nation, regardless of the cost. And then wing number two fails to bring that power into play to sober those problem solvers with more realistic approach. The eagle will spin off towards the left, which is tyranny. Sounds familiar. And on the other hand, if wing number one solves problems in an effort to save money or preserve the status quo, then the machinery of government loses its credibility and the eagle drifts towards the right where the people will uh, decide to take matters into their own hands and can eventually you know, disintegrate into anarchy. So we want that balanced center. So when both wings are fulfilling their assigned functions, the American eagle can soar and fly straighter and higher than any civilization in history. And that's what we want. And this is what the founding fathers envisioned as they finally concluded the Constitutional Convention. So here we are. We are at the point of signing. We've worked, we've worked so hard to put this together. It's Monday, September 17th, 1787. And 41 of the original 55 delegates solemnly meet in the East Room of Independence Hall for the signing. I'm sorry, it's so emotional. <laughs> I love our country so much. Um, because a few of them had reservations about signing still, Franklin says, let's sign 
as a majority so that we can say that we have unanimous consent of the states. And that was done. And so three delegates did not sign. Uh, Elbridge Jerry of Massachusetts, George Mason of Virginia, and Governor Edmund Randolph of Virginia. And their main objection was that the Constitution didn't have a Bill of Rights, and so they didn't want uh, they didn't want it to be presumed that only uh, the rights that were listed in the Constitution were were what were to be protected because there was no Bill of Rights yet. Um, we eventually do add that in later as the first ten amendments, of course. Um, but they had their reservations about signing it as it was. And so as the delegates were signing, James Madison uh, is watching everybody sign. He's taking his notes as he did the whole time. And when Benjamin Franklin signed, uh, Madison writes, the old man wept, <laughs> which makes me want to cry too. <laughs> um, but the, the Constitution is signed. It's 1787. And then those Federalist Papers for a year and a half are circulating the colonies to convince people how great the Constitution is, and they're explaining it, how it's going to work, and how it's going to protect their rights and um, their God-given rights. And it's John Jay and Alexander Hamilton and James Madison uh, working together to put those papers out. And then in June of 1788, it is ratified, making it the law of the land. And then it's officially adopted by all the states in 1789. And then, of course, George Washington is sworn in at Federal Hall in New York as president following that. And um, I believe we have uh, a, a next slide of the, uh, the room there where you can go and you can still visit. This is totally on my bucket list. I'm hoping to get there this summer, um, but I would love to see the room where this all happened and took place. What an amazing place to visit. And you can see the very place where our country's constitution was created. And now that you know all this history, it'll mean so much more to you if you get to go there and experience it for yourself. But as the last of the delegates were signing, Franklin referred to a carving on the sun, of the sun on the back of George Washington's chair, um, which you can see there in the picture. And he said, I have often in the course of the session looked at that sun behind the president without being able to tell whether it was rising or setting. But now at length, I have the happiness to know that it is rising and not a setting sun. And we also know the story of him leaving the convention one day and he was asked, what form of government have you given us, sir? And he replies, a republic, ma'am, if you can keep it. So uh, we are just so thankful to these founders as that famous convention comes to a close. It was though a great battle had been won. The Constitution still had to go through the Congress and the people. But this meant that the great intellectual battle to get the American Charter of Liberty established in the hearts and minds of the American people still had to be fought and their carefully structured formula for freedom and prosperity was about to go through, you know, it's, it's baptism fire, so to speak. Um, but we are just so uh, thankful that they, these men were, were brought together for this time, they were raised up for this purpose, and they worked through this, this uh, perilous time of putting together all of this uh, information to get the Constitution uh, founded, you know, put together. So thank you all so much for joining us tonight. And uh, please be sure to go back through your book and read the lesson again and take some more notes and maybe fill in the blanks and take a peek at next week's lesson. 
And then if you have time, um, there's this George Washington movie that I just watched this past week. I found it on YouTube. So it's completely a free movie. And it's like six hours long because it's actually like a mini series. But um, it was called, I think it's just called George Washington. But if you Google, if you Google it on uh, YouTube, you'll find it. It was from 1984 and it stars, uh, I think it's Barry Bostick or somebody. And um, the lady from Charlie's Angels is in it too. And Jacqueline Smith is in it too. So it's, it was kind of a cute movie and they had really put in a lot of the things that we've already talked about. So I was recognizing those things as actual history, actual historical references included in the movie. So it was really actually well done. And I would, I would recommend it to you if you're just looking for something to watch that's not um, degrading like so many of the things are on TV. Next week, we'll be starting a brand new seminar all about um, the Constitution itself and what it actually says. We'll work through the whole thing for, for the next four weeks. And so it can be overwhelming, but I will try to make it as, as broken down and easy as possible for you. And uh, we will look forward to that time. Thank you again for joining us and have a great night.